All right, well, uh, this evening we are returning to our sermon series, uh, Living Theology. And as we do that, I'd like to invite you to open a Bible to Psalm 139, uh, a very famous psalm, I would say. Psalm 139 will lead us into the theme of God being all-knowing. That's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Psalm 139. For the director of music of David, a psalm. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Father God, we pray now that you would move with your spirit, that you would use your word, uh, and that you would show us something of what it means for you to be all-knowing and all-wise, and how that can be wonderful comfort to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In ancient and medieval times, uh, people could only view the solar system with the naked eye. Uh, And so for a long time, people only knew about the sun, the moon, 
and five other planets and comets. And then in the early 1600s, Italian astronomer Galileo Galilei uh, invented the telescope. And he used his new telescope to discover that there were four moons orbiting the planet Jupiter. And since then, it was something of a snowball effect as more and more new technologies were developed. Numerous new discoveries were made as a result. Currently, today, more than 300 spacecraft, ro robotic spacecrafts, have been sent to explore beyond the Earth's orbit. And apparently, 24 American astronauts have now been to the moon. It's amazing to think of the combined human effort that has gone in over hundreds of years, sharing knowledge, sharing new technologies, venturing out into endless galaxies which cover mind-numbing distances. And then meanwhile, on planet Earth, others are digging into the micro-realities of life on our planet, discovering new animals and bacterias, discovering about our environment and new insights into the human body and into how our brains work. And as a result, we have millions of books and PhDs. And new articles and documentaries continue to inform us of new discoveries. And we marvel, don't we, at the great minds that have dedicated their lives to discovering these hidden truths. But while it is, is right and good to marvel at, at the minds of those who make these discoveries, how much more should we marvel at the mind of the one who lies behind them? The one who didn't just discover them, but who masterminded and created them. And so today we want to think about and meditate on God, and in particular, His knowledge and wisdom. Uh, we're partway through a series called Living Theology, and we're looking at who God really is. What's God really like? And that's where we have to start with theology, isn't it? We have to start with God and with what we call His attributes, who He is. So this evening our goal is to learn more about God's knowledge and wisdom. And I hope that our experience is going to be a little bit like perhaps if you were to walk through an art gallery and see an incredible artwork. And that the act of looking at that artwork wouldn't be something passive or boring, but would be something active and engaging and it would actually stir joy within you and inspire you to worship. Uh, this evening, I'm going to give you my big idea right up front. Are you ready for it? Here it is. You can go after that, hey? How good it is to be known by the all-knowing God. How good it is to be known by the all-knowing God. And to unpack this, we really need to think about two things. First, what does it mean for God to be all-knowing? And then we need to ask, why is that so good? Why might that actually be incredibly comforting to us this week? Well, let's start with God being all-knowing. That's our first point. God is all-knowing. What does it mean to say that God is all-knowing? It means that He fully knows all things. He knows everything about creation. Psalm 114 says, He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. He also knows every detail of our lives. 
He knows what we need before we ask him, Matthew 6, 8. He knows the number of hairs on your head, Matthew 10, 30. Uh, in Psalm 139, verse 2, which we just read, he knows our thoughts. God knows what you are thinking right now. And he knows what we'll say before we say it, Psalm 139, verse 4. He also knows how many days you'll live and what will happen on each one of them. Verse 16 of that psalm said, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Which means God also knows the future. He says in Isaiah 46 verse 10, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. God's knowledge is, is infinite and exhaustive. There isn't one single thing that escapes his knowing. He even knows himself perfectly. The Father knows the Son, the Son knows the Father. 1 Corinthians 2 says the Spirit knows all the thoughts of God. But we can go, we can go deeper because God doesn't just know all the things that exist, but also all the things that are possible but don't actually happen. Uh, for example, in Matthew 11, Jesus knows what would have happened if the wicked cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida had repented. You might have heard of the butterfly effect. It's this idea that one tiny little change can have an impact on the entire world. Our universe has millions of variables, and depending on what happens, they can produce trillions of different outcomes. And God knows every variable and every possibility, both actual and merely hypothetical. God's knowledge is also amazing because it's intuitive. Uh, theologian Sam Storms explains that our knowledge comes to us by way of observation, reasoning, comparison, induction, deduction, and so on. In other words, we learn. But God's knowledge, writes Sam Storms, is intuitive, by which is meant that it is innate and immediate. God does not learn, he simply knows. Uh, Paul cries out in Romans 11, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? In other words, God didn't get his knowledge from anyone else. He's never had a teacher. He's never had a parent. He's never discovered anything or learnt anything. Not only is God's knowledge intuitive, but it's instant. He knows all things all the time. Uh, Psalm 33 says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. If you ask God how many grains of sand are at the bottom of the Trevallon Dam, he won't have to go away and count them before answering. You know, at a trivia night where you realize, oh, I know that, and then you take a moment to recall it. 
For God, there is no recall. It's instant, not because he's got a super fast memory, but because everything is always in his consciousness. God's knowledge is also infallible. No errors, no blind spots, no limitations. He's never had to correct or recalibrate in any way. And God's knowledge is also simultaneous, meaning he knows all things, past, present, and future, at the same time. Because our past and present and future are all part of God's eternal now. Mind, mind blowing. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says that God inhabits eternity. That's why Ephesians 1 can say God chose to save us before the foundation of the world. Or, or 2 Timothy 1.10 that he, he did so before the beginning of time. Now, some have questioned how God's knowledge of the future fits with the idea that humans have free will. And we're not going to go into that discussion now, although I'd love to chat to you about it later if you're interested. For now, we simply need to see that God really does know all things, including what will happen in the future. And remember what we said before, this knowledge isn't something learnt or discovered, as if he peered down a telescope into the future and said, okay, Reuben had muesli for breakfast on Sunday the 10th of April. Good to know, I'll remember to include that in my plans. No, God's knowledge is more causal and certain and fundamental than that. He doesn't simply know the future as an observer. He knows the future as the creator of the future, the Lord who shapes all things by His sovereign purposes. And that brings us to our second point, to talking about God's wisdom. We've looked at God being all-knowing, but this is leading us now into... God being all wise. What is the difference between God's knowledge and God's wisdom? Well, God's knowledge is about knowing all things, whereas God's wisdom is about using that knowledge to choose the best way forward. Right? So, having known all possibilities and considered every variable, God's wisdom is the way that he chooses the best goals and then also chooses the best means to achieve those goals. God's wisdom is him choosing the best goal and then also choosing the best means to achieve that goal. What is the best goal? The Bible tells us, doesn't it, that ultimately all things happen for God's glory. Which raises the question, how is God's glory the most wise goal? Why is it most wise and best for all things to revolve around God and His glory? And the answer we find in the Bible is because there is absolutely nothing and no one more awesome, lovely, powerful, more worthy of living for than God. To engineer the universe around any other goal or center or focus would be sheer folly. 
It would be like uh, building a house right on the beach, and then instead of designing your living room with these lovely big windows looking out on the ocean, you build it with, with plain brick walls, no windows, uh, and then you place in the middle, under a spotlight, a toilet. Uh, how mixed up! How foolish! And how foolish it is when we take romantic desires, sexual desires, having children, career success, being fit and attractive, being good at sport or music or art, being influential on social media, being financially well off, and we pretend that any of those things belong at the center of our lives. God is not arrogant or cocky in causing all things to glorify himself. In fact, he's incredibly wise and generous to do it like that because it means that you and I have the utter pleasure of knowing and obeying and enjoying the most supreme thing that has ever existed. But there's, there's another question we need to ask flowing out of this. Because we said that in his wisdom, God doesn't just choose the best goals, but he also chooses the best means to achieve that goal. So, of all the worlds that God could have made, of all the futures he could have created, why did he choose for there to be two chapters of paradise at the start of the Bible, two chapters of paradise at the end, and 1,185 chapters of sin and suffering in between. Why a plan that involves sin and judgment? And the Son of God hanging on a cross. And many have asked that question and stumbled over the answer. It seems so foolish. Who would do it like that? And Paul admits this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, yes, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That right there is the genius of the plan to all who think they are wise, who think they're knowledgeable, who think they know best how to run the world and run their lives, who think little of God and much of themselves, to them the humiliation of the cross of Christ makes no sense. And in their pride, they will reject God's salvation. It's the genius of God's plan. Those who think they are wise will make the most foolish choice to reject God. Whereas those who know that they're sinful and weak will be the ones who receive all the treasures and delights of God. That's how the cross works. It simultaneously pushes away the arrogant and draws the humble. And so Paul says, we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. 
are you glimpsing the incomparable wisdom of God? Do you see how this plan makes the know-it-alls of the world look like fools? Do you see how God is able to display His justice and His holiness and His righteousness more fully as He punishes them for their arrogance? And do you also see how this plan lifts up the lowest and the weakest to a place of incredible honor and glory and yet does it in such a way that none of them can boast about it? Oh, what other plan than the plan of our world puts God on display more fully, displays all the attributes of God, His, his justice, His righteousness, His holiness, His grace, His kindness, His love, His compassion. And so we glimpse the perfect wisdom of God, wisdom that glorifies Himself and does it in such a way that you and I can experience the goodness of God most fully. I wonder if your head is spinning. (laughs) We've looked at something of what it means for God to be all-knowing and all-wise. God fully knows all things, and then He uses that knowledge to serve His wise purposes. But now, in our third and final point, we need to ask, how should we respond to this? What difference will this make in our lives? And I think the first and the most natural response is, is awe and wonder. Uh, listen, listen to how an old English theologian called Stephen, I don't even know how to say his surname, Charnock, describes this. The language is a bit old, but I, I love what he says. Consider how great it is to know the thoughts and intentions and works of one man from the beginning to the end of his life, to foreknow all these before the being of this man, when he was lodged afar off in the loins of his ancestors, yea, of Adam. How much greater is it to foreknow and know the thoughts and works of three or four men, of a whole village or neighborhood? It is greater still to know the imaginations and actions of such a multitude of men as are contained in London. Paris or Constantinople. How much greater still to know the intentions and practices, the clandestine contrivances of so many millions that have, do, or shall swarm in all quarters of the world, every person of them having millions of thoughts, designs, affections, and actions. Let this attribute then make the blessed God honourable in our eyes and adorable in our affections, adore God for this wonderful perfection. That's the first impact that this should have on us, I think. It, It drives us to amazement and adoration. But it has another impact on us too. God's infinite knowledge is actually quite unsettling and uncomfortable, because it leaves us exposed and unable to hide, doesn't it? The thought that God sees everything all the time is terrifying. 
We like to guard what we say. We like to protect what people think about us. Have you noticed that we act differently around people than when we're alone? And we conceal ourselves with doors and curtains and clothes and secrets and lies and humour. We're fearful of the thought that someone might see the real us. Perhaps scared because they might take advantage of us or misunderstand us. But also because we know that deep inside our hearts are dark caves, slimy with sin. How terrifying to think that God sees our hearts. His gaze pierces and probes like the eye of Sauron in Lord of the Rings. We read in Hebrews 4.13, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And unless you're perfect, this should concern you. This isn't something to shrug off because it means that whatever guilty secrets you have, whatever you think you're going to get away with, none of that is hidden from God. And on Judgment Day, it will come out, and you won't be able to downplay it or shift the blame. Adam and Eve realized this that very first time that they sinned in the garden. And they covered themselves with fig leaves because they suddenly realized they were naked. Then they tried to hide behind a tree they saw God coming. What happened? God knew. God held them to account. But then he did something else, something beautiful. He made garments of skin for Adam and Eve to clothe them. And in this act, we see a glimpse of the gospel. James Boyce writes, This is the message of Christianity that we can be known and yet clothed at the same time. On the basis of his perfect and atoning sacrifice, God would then clothe all who believe in Christ with the Lord's own righteousness. Boyce goes on, Now we can stand before him rather than hide, not because God has been ignorant of our sin or has refused to care about it, but because he has known about it and has dealt with it perfectly. How good is that? How comforting. That just in our moment of greatest humiliation and exposure, we find dignity and love and righteousness. As we finish, I just wanted to briefly see three wonderful reasons why this is so comforting. And again, I owe these observations to James Boyce. First, God knows the worst about you, and yet He loves and saves you. You never need to fear that God might leave you or reject you, because He knows every single thing about you. He knows your sin more deeply than you know it yourself, and yet He chose to save you. The Holy Spirit doesn't live in you as a spy, but as a helper. 
You can be completely honest with God. You can come clean about all of your sin because God already knows the worst about you and it hasn't pushed him away. In fact, it drew him closer. So first, God knows the worst about you and yet he loves and saves you. Second, God knows the best about you even if others don't. He sees the good things that you do in secret. He sees every good intention of your heart. He sees every desire you have for godliness, even though you're still struggling with sin. He sees when you were right, even though someone else misunderstood you or slandered you or abused you. Which means that we can live our lives for an audience of one, knowing that our Heavenly Father understands us better than anyone else. He is our best friend. He is our closest ally. God knows the worst about you, and yet He loves and saves you. God knows the best about you, even if others don't. Third, God knows what He is going to make of us. He knows the future. He knows exactly what He's doing, and He knows the reason for which He made and saved you. Now listen to what it says in Romans 8, 28 to 29. We're familiar with the first part of this, but do we know what comes next? We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God, those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. God knows with certainty that in the future, in the end, you will be perfectly conformed to the image of His Son. Righteous and holy. And everything that happens in your life, every struggle and setback, has been chosen by Him in His perfect wisdom to help you reach that goal. So we can trust Him completely, even when it makes no sense to us what's going on. Because while our knowledge might be limited, His is infinite. If there's anyone here tonight who is trying to run from God, trying to hide some great sin, perhaps, I want to urge you to stop trying to outrun the all-knowing God. Instead, turn to Jesus with your sin and be set free. That really is the counterintuitive message of Christianity. You can't outrun God, but you can turn to Him. And as you do, you'll discover that being honest before God does not destroy you. It actually liberates you. And you'll discover, as so many others in this room have, how good it is to be known by the all-knowing God. Let's pray. Lord, how good it is to be known by you. We, we are amazed and a little scared to think of just what you see and know. You see everything. You know us intimately. You know the past, the present, and the future of the entire universe. Not just as an observer, but as the sovereign Lord of all.
Lord, we praise and worship you for this. What is man that you are mindful of him? We're so humbled that you would see all of our our muck and our sin, just our, our blackened hearts which seem to just pulse day in and day out with, with selfish, ugly thoughts and desires. You would see all of that, all the time, always in your consciousness, and then you would love us, and you would give up your own Son to save us, and you would commit to cleaning us up patiently day after day, working with us, sanctifying us, making us more and more and more like Jesus. Oh God, we, we thank you that you know us completely and it hasn't driven you away, but drawn you to us in love and grace. How good it is to be known by you, Lord. We give you praise and thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen.